Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In tonight's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're going to be starting in Chapter 14 of Acts. And we have Mark Horton with us tonight, and as we like to do, we'll start with a word of prayer. Travis, would you open us, please? Dear Lord, thank you for this time for us to gather and for your word to show us our salvation, our only path to salvation. There aren't, there are no other ways except through you, your Jesus Christ, your Son. And let us uh, hear the scripture from Mark. I mean, the lesson from Mark, and uh, uh, get uh, learn from it, so that we can spread the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. Uh, it's good to be back with you all. We've had a bit of a tumultuous summer and a little bit erratic in uh, proceeding with our examination of the uh, book of Acts, uh, originally titled The History of Christian Origins, uh, but we have been able to work through chapter 13 where Paul makes his big debut as the uh, leading figure as he will remain throughout the rest of the book. We've been looking at some of the major themes in Acts, such as the restoration of Israel, which is the subject of scores and scores of prophecies in the Hebrew prophets. And we are looking at this systematic fulfillment of the Great Commission given at the end of the Gospels and repeated again in Acts 1, uh, we're looking at how that's all fulfilled, and, and we're seeing how that there's a roughly 40-year period here between, well, when John the Baptist uh, began preaching repentance to escape imminent destruction and the fulfillment of that destruction when the entire nation of Judea was utterly and completely destroyed and Judean citizens were rounded up and exterminated uh, throughout the Roman world during the war that took place between Judea and Rome but from 67 to 70 AD. So there, there is a sense of urgency as Jesus taught his disciples on the Mount of Olives after prophesying the destruction of the temple. They were very troubled. They, they said, well, Lord, uh, what will be the sign of your coming 
or presence and of the end of the age because they they knew from reading the prophets that the end of the temple would mean the uh, end of the age. Uh, Daniel was uh, pretty explicit about that and intended that in in a number of the other prophets as well. So they knew that uh, that the destruction of the temple was tied to the end of the age. And there's this sense of urgency to get the good news of Jesus Christ out to every Judean before uh, judgment falls on them as a people and as a nation. And so we, we will see here in chapter 14 a repeat of the pattern that Paul and Barnabas had uh, followed in, well, everywhere they went, but we have explicit records of how they did it on Cyprus and then as they came north and landed on the southern coast of Turkey and then went inland into south-central Turkey, which was known as Asia Minor in those days, how they would go to the synagogue first. And we talked uh, last time in detail about how that the only place anyone could go to hear the Hebrew Scriptures would be to the gathering of the Judeans on the Sabbath day on Saturday. And the word synagogue actually doesn't mean a building. It means the assembly of the people. Um, so it's very similar to ecclesia, which is grossly mistranslated as church in our English Bibles. But it really just means the assembly of the people or the called out assembly. So they're really talking about kind of the same thing. But Paul is, is going to go always to the Judeans first and then to the Gentiles and and there's a you know reason for that because the Judeans had a clock ticking and when they rejected the gospel the acceptance by the Gentiles would provoke more of the Judeans to jealousy and to examine the scriptures and to be saved, as Paul describes in his letter to the Roman Gentile Christians. So there was a, a real reason to preach to the Judean first, then to the Gentile, and then to go back and glean the final remnant of the Judean people before it was everlastingly too late for them all. So we'll see this, uh, this pattern continue here in chapter 14. Let's uh, begin by reading the first seven verses, please. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. All right. Thank you very much, Leslie. Mm -hmm. So uh, they'd been at Pisidian Antioch. They left. They came to Iconium. 
which was a city of significant size, which is where uh, Paul always went. He bypassed most places that did not have synagogues. His passion was to get to every single spot in the world that had a, a synagogue, which again was not a building, but it was just a group of, uh, of Judeans. There had to be at least 10 Judean males who, who would qualify as part of the people, um, uh, meaning that they had to meet all the criteria of not being cut off from the people out of the law of Moses. And then you could have a formal synagogue, which was recognized by the Roman government, and you would uh, acquire a complete set of Hebrew scriptures, which would have been, again, incredibly valuable and almost impossible for the typical private citizen to own a copy of. And again, we see here that they're already, I mean, the time was right. <laughs> God knew exactly what he was doing. Um, again, our, our, sad to say, our dispensational friends uh, just are left completely out in the cold, you know, when they think that, the Lord attempted to set up his kingdom in, in the first century and failed because the timing was wrong, because the time was exactly right. God knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, I'm, perhaps I am sound extreme in saying that, <laughs> but uh, um, he knew exactly what he was doing. The Hebrew religion had a fascination for the people of the Roman world. Now, not all of them, but look, everywhere... In every synagogue outside of Palestine, we are seeing that there's already a large number of God-fearing Gentiles who are assembling with the Judeans to hear the Hebrew Scriptures read, to learn the Law and the Prophets. And these became the core of the churches. Um, but they already knew the Scriptures. That's why, as we'll see, that elders could be appointed... Uh, in short order, because there was a ready audience of Judeans and Gentiles who knew the Scriptures. And the only Scriptures they had at this time were the Hebrew Scriptures. So a great multitude of Jews and Greeks believed. Now, we, we, we remember the persecution and the problems, but look at that. You have a great multitude of Jews and Greeks who believed right away when Paul and Barnabas enter the synagogue in Iconium. So, again, the time was right. The pagans were being drawn to the superiority of the God of Israel. And it was a great topic of conversation and writing in the uh, Judean literature of the time that in, the, in their last days, all the nations would be uh, drawn into uh, Israel, and so you know we're just we're just seeing this happen, just the way the uh, Old Testament prophets predicted that it would be. And uh, in keeping with this, in verse two, we see that there were uh, another number of the Judeans who did not believe and who stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and inflame them against uh, the believers in, in the context. I, a friend of mine here in our local church assembly 
is uh, writing a book. He's a retired preacher, but he's writing a book on Paul's thorn in the flesh. And he is writing that from the viewpoint that that thorn in the flesh was not a physical ailment at all, but was rather Judean persecution. And we'll see it over and over again throughout the book of Acts. Right here in 14 verse 2, these Judeans stirred up mobs in um, amongst the people. And, and we, we also must keep in mind that Acts is repeating the life of Jesus Christ in the lives of Peter and Paul, primarily. The mobs, the Judean mobs, stirred up the masses against Jesus, and, you know, until he got in trouble. And, and we'll see more and more of that here against Paul, where they would track him down, follow him, and stir up mobs to oppose what he is trying to do here. But they were still able to spend a considerable time uh, speaking boldly uh, here in this city, and they were able to confirm their message. You know, they've got this this uh, incendiary group trying to deny their message. Here they're trying to confirm the message, and they are given the power to perform signs and wonders. And this is not the only place we're told that that is the purpose of these miracles. I believe at the end of the Gospel of Mark uh, is where it also says, and so they went confirming the word that they spoke with signs and wonders. So, again, we see a big difference in what people would call a miracle today and in the powers demonstrated by the apostles in the first century to be able to take somebody blind from birth, instantly make them see, to be able to take somebody missing a limb or having a withered limb to instantly restore it, or even to come to someone who is physically dead and be able to instantly uh, revive them. These were signs and wonders which were to oppose the false Judean teachers and were also a portent of impending doom upon the Judean nation just as the signs and wonders worked during the first exodus against Egypt and against Egypt's false sorcerers were signs of impending doom on Egypt. The book of Acts is a second exodus where the Judean people are being called out of everything they knew, just like Abraham told to leave everything that he knew and go to some new land. These Judeans are being asked to leave behind their old life, and enter a new spiritual kingdom that cannot be uh, felt with the fingers or seen with the eyes. Uh, so, uh, anyway, it, it's to me it's fascinating the parallels here between the old Exodus and the new Exodus and the signs and wonders of Acts and the signs and wonders uh, in uh, the Exodus and the other books of Moses. So the city is divided. You have uh, the apostles with their signs and wonders, and then you have the Jews, and no doubt many of them had false signs and wonders. They're not listed here, but we'll see it later in the book. You know, they brought back all kinds of uh, of black magic from Babylon, um, and, uh, you know, they have Jewish exorcists, which we'll see later in the book. So they, no doubt, uh, to, to maintain the parallel, probably had false signs and wonders which they use to oppose the true signs and wonders of the apostles. Uh, 
some major uh, effort was planned or plotted by their opponents to to uh, incorporate the rulers of the city with the aim of uh, torturing and stoning the party of Paul and Barnabas. They got wind of it and uh, made their escape to uh, Lyconia, Lister, and Derby. But remember, they've been here, they were able to stay here a long time, and a great multitude believed. So their stay in Iconium was a great success. And now they're able to go to this other group of cities and the surrounding region and continue to preach the gospel. And by way of definition, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the hope of Israel. And that's what they're preaching, is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are the promises made to Israel fulfilled. All right, any uh, any thoughts or comments then on this first section? No, that was well done. All right, well then let's read verses 8 through 13. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, quote, The gods have come down to us in human form, unquote. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. All right, thank you. So back in Acts 3, there was a lame man sitting at the beautiful gate in the temple courtyard, And Peter and John had gone up there to pray. And the whole town and probably half of the out-of-town pilgrims had seen this man at this gate before. He'd been there for years. And they knew that he was instantly, immediately healed. And that gave Peter the chance to preach the gospel to tens of thousands more of the Judean people at that time in Acts 3. So now we have a repeat of it here in Lystra, and again, this is in fulfillment of another promise to Israel out of the uh, book of Isaiah in Isaiah 35, where it's talking about the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad, the desert will rejoice and blossom like the rose, and talking about some future transformation of the land of Palestine, and It's mixed in with the warning that God will come with vengeance and will recompense. But then, beginning in verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. A highway shall be there, and a way, it shall be called the way of holiness, The unclean shall not pass over it. There will be no lion there. 
and the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. So this is a prediction or prophecy of the restoration of Israel here in Isaiah 35. And uh, we're seeing these prophecies fulfilled in detail um, in, in the book of Acts. So this guy jumps up, just like Isaiah 35 says, and began to walk instantly. But this crowd is a little bit different than the ones in Acts 3 in the temple courtyard, where they're astonished and, and uh, realize that the true God had to be behind it. Here, most of the crowd were pagan, and so they misinterpreted this as uh, Zeus and Hermes of the uh, Roman Greek pantheon uh, coming down in human form, and they're attempting to uh, uh, make a sacrifice uh, there to them in uh, at the gates of the city, which of course would have been the uh, the center of commerce and gathering uh, in any ancient city in the Middle East. Any uh, thoughts or comments on that paragraph? Well, it certainly was a, a very exciting moment uh, for them to see a layman walk. They probably never saw that happen before, not under Zeus by any means. So I, I can just imagine what they went through to stop this crazy crowd that wanted to sacrifice. And, of course, they, they missed the, the point right there, but... Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. One point I failed to mention, we're told that they spoke in Lyconian, and that's a little bit significant in that they're not speaking Greek. And recall that the, the synagogue gathering would have been all Greek. They would have been using the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and only the Greek-speaking uh, Gentiles, you know, would really be able to uh, to function there in the synagogue. So the crowd here that interprets this, you know, are the ones that are not the most likely ones to to be involved or to have even been able to evaluate what was going on in the local Judean community. All right, uh, the next paragraph is 14 through 18. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. All right, great. Um, the language uh, could have also prevented Barnabas and Paul from figuring out what was going on right away. And, uh, you know, they're, they're struggling here in this passage to stop this 
sacrifice. And it, it just tells us that they had difficulty. But they are able to compare the true God, the God of Israel, to these pagan gods that the, that the locals worked. The term apostle is used here of Barnabas and Paul. It was mentioned back in verse 4, and then it's mentioned here in verse 14. And these are the only two places in the book of Acts where either of these men are called apostles, interestingly enough. Barnabas is still listed uh, first here. Remember, he was the original leader of the uh, of the expedition, but uh, Paul is becoming, uh, you know, dominant here as they uh, progress with their journey. I can see why they called him Hermes because he was the silver tongue. <laughs> yeah, the outspoken one. And just as Peter was that same way in the first half of the book. And uh, now Paul is going to be that way here in the latter part. All right, so again, they protest, and uh, it's not direct quotes from the Hebrew prophets, but it's the language of the Hebrew prophets in condemning the false gods of the nations that Paul and Barnabas use here to dissuade them from offering these sacrifices. We, we can see... Uh, that type of language, uh, vanities and so on, that, that are used throughout the prophets to describe the pagan gods of the nations there. All right, anything else there? We can proceed then with verses 19 through 23. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Quote, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, unquote, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. All right, thank you again. Now, Antioch in Pisidia was a hundred miles from Lystra. But these Judeans came all that way to try to persuade the multitudes against uh, Paul. And, and again, we see how fickle the crowds are. As in Jerusalem, they greet Jesus with palm fronds and hail the king as he comes in. And five days later, you know, they're in Pilate's courtyard screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And we're seeing some of the same thing here. The the multitudes had tried to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, and now they're persuaded to uh, drag him out and and stone him. So again, you can see that why you might think this thorn in the flesh could be these Judeans who would follow Paul to the ends of the earth to... Uh, 
try to kill him or shut him up any way they could. I just wonder why they would want to kill somebody uh, for bringing good news. <laughs> that is the question. And, uh, I mean, it's the Gospel of John in the prologue, you know, tells us, he came to his own and his own received him not. Yeah. And Moses had prophesied this in Deuteronomy 18. He said, in your last days there will be a prophet like unto me. Listen to him. Anyone who doesn't believe him will be utterly cut off from the people. And so, you know, there's a lot of of uh, predictions that, uh, that or, or even Simeon, think of Simeon holding up the baby Jesus in the temple courtyard saying, he is set for the rise and fall of many in Israel. And, and he's alluding to a passage that's talking about the chief cornerstone, which becomes the stone of stumbling and offense. So there's all these prophecies that Jesus, as the cornerstone of the, of the restored Israel, is also going to be a stumbling stone that will cause many in Israel to fall. And they're going to fall a long way. And we see this right here. They are, they are absolutely fanatical uh, in their opposition to Jesus Christ. Now, there's some manuscript evidence that this rose up in verse 20 is that, is that he rose up in evening. In other words, after it started getting dark, Paul is stoned and left dead. But as it started to get dark, he got up and went back into the city. And, you know, it, it makes sense that way. If people are watching, if the guards are watching from the walls or something, they couldn't tell who was who out there in that pile of uh, stones and the people that uh, of disciples who had gathered around, you know, Paul to, to mourn him. I mean, uh, this is one of those stories that we wish we had more detail on but uh, we you know there's no point in conjecturing too much here but uh, uh, stoning was not a pleasant thing and uh, not too many people survived it Stephen didn't no no and they we have a lot of writings and we probably discussed that at the time of uh, Stephen's execution but you know they they tried to push you backwards off of a long 20-foot drop into a pit of rocks so that you would die from that. And then they tried to drop a stone on you from up there, and only if you survived that did then the whole crowd, you know, pick up big rocks and drop them down. They tried to find a place with a big drop-off to do these stonings in. All right, anyways, brutal, brutal and bloody. But he he got up, went back into the city, was able to get patched back together, presumably, and get a little rest, and then the next day heads out for a derby with Barnabas. And and again, he preached the gospel and made many disciples. Uh, so they had success everywhere they went, both amongst the Judeans and the Gentiles, but they also had opposition stirred up by the Judeans, but also including the Gentiles in every city. And so then they begin to backtrack through their route. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I would go back uh, if I, you know. Uh, 
to the place where I was stoned. Sprang back for more. And left for dead. Yeah, yeah. But again, so their resurrection power. (laughs) Yeah, I mean they have absolute confidence in the power of Jesus. You know, he had told them, "Lo, I am with you to the end of the age," and this is the this is the end of the age we're talking about. The old creation, the the old world uh, of Israel that began at Mount Sinai and will end with the destruction of the temple. You know, they're racing to complete their commission before the end comes. And, you know, so they expect it. And we see that here in verse 22. They encourage the disciples who are having to still be in this crowd. I mean, again, they're still having to assemble with the Judeans to hear the scriptures read in most of these places. But they're encouraged here that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's an ongoing process that began on the day of Pentecost, but is not going to be finished until the destruction of the temple and so on, that the Judeans and the Gentiles are being transformed out of the old Israel, the physical Israel, into the spiritual Israel, the perfect Israel, the the imperfect harlot bride is being transformed into the perfect bride of revelation, you know, throughout this 40-year period. And so, you know, he talks about it here as if it is an ongoing process, which it was uh, during this time of transition here in the book of Acts. And uh, it's it was the time of great tribulation, which had to occur before the end. And then they appointed uh, elders in each church, and we believe that the elders at this time would have had uh, miraculous gifts imparted to them by the laying on of hands of Paul and or Barnabas, uh, so that they, because they didn't have the New Testament books or letters, they hadn't been written yet, and uh, they would have tried to leave some type of miraculous gift with them of prophecy, recollection, languages, and so on, so that some of these uh, signs and wonders could continue, and that also that the uh, the saints could be edified and know, you know, what's happening in the in the troublesome times uh, in which they lived. With prayer and fasting, they commended them to the Lord, in whom they had believed. And and we know from Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus that there were a pretty rigorous set of attributes for elders, and a novice, you know, would not have been suitable. So these were obviously Judeans and Gentiles who had been soaked in the Hebrew Scriptures uh, to prepare them for that uh, role of responsibility. And again, as way, just as a review question. You know, can you find Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures? Well, yes, all the way through. (laughs) Exactly. That's what that's what we're trying to show. That was the purpose of it, wasn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. And we'll see this more. You know, Berea, uh, which we haven't got to yet in the Book of Acts, but the the whole synagogue community in Berea examined the scriptures to see if the things Paul said were true. Paul and Silas. So. You know, they were teaching from, 
the Hebrew Scriptures all through the book of Acts. We're seeing the prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures being fulfilled in detail. So it's all about Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament Scriptures are so important and uh, neglected by so many Christians in America today, sadly. All right. Anything else on that? We have then... Uh, Yeah, just the final uh, few verses here, verses 24 to the end of the chapter. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there... They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. All right. So Luke provides us here the uh, the route after they went back to uh, Pisidian Antioch. Uh, then they they worked their way down uh, back towards the coast, and then were able to sail down to Antioch in Syria, which is to the south and the east, where they had started uh, this journey from. And uh, the the Christians there, no doubt, had uh, funded their entire effort. So they gathered them all together, of course, when they got back. That was their home church family, and they uh, gathered them all together, no doubt had a joyful reunion and were able to report all the amazing things that had uh, happened uh, on their trip, and they were able to spend a considerable amount of time there with them. So this... That's how the church got started. (laughs) Hooray! (laughs) Yeah, so that Paul is going to make uh, two or three spirals in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, he's just completed one of the spirals uh, here. Um, again, hitting any major city that would have had a synagogue. And uh, well, he's got another spiral or two to make in the east before he turns his heart and mind to the western part of the uh, empire. Now, uh, next time we meet, we'll be talking about Acts chapter 15, and this has got some real significant material in it because this is the Judean Christians back in Jerusalem. It's their response to what has just been happening up to the north there in, again, present-day Turkey, present-day Syria. It's, it's going to be quite, quite interesting. We're going to see how the, uh, the local assemblies made decisions in the first century, and it's not the way most churches today do it. <laughs> We're going to see just how important the topic of circumcision is, and we, it's it's very fascinating uh, because this was a point of, of contention is whether these new Gentile converts needed to be circumcised uh, 
and whether they needed to follow the law of Moses. And this is the whole purpose for this big meeting down in Jerusalem. Because some Judean Christians are going to travel all the way up there to Syria to start trying to bind this on the uh, Gentile Christians, circumcision and uh, complete adherence to the law of Moses. And so that's going to be the context of our uh, look at chapter 15. And what we're going to see is the fascinating idea that both sides of this dispute understand that the restoration of Israel is taking place. And they're both interpreting prophecies that undeniably are about the restoration of Israel in her last days. So even in this somewhat negative context, we see the ideas of Darby and Schofield and our dispensational and Zionist uh, friends and relatives being completely crushed by the simple reading of what's going on in context and and comparing the spiritual fulfillment in the New Testament of every Old Testament prophecy, which our friends and relatives are still waiting to be fulfilled literally, and they will be waiting a long, long time. The book of Acts just absolutely crushes the, uh, the heresy, the mythology of, uh, of Darbyism here. So anyway, that's my take on it. But you be the judge. Uh, uh, I hope you can join us when we're able to resume and look at Acts 15. Great. Thank you, Mark. Another excellent study. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.